Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can find out a little bit more about their background. Joining us today for the second time is my co-host, Jonathan Schachter, who is a lecturer at Kyushu Sangyo University. Good to speak to you again, Jonathan. Good to be back on the, the main page of citations and not buried at the bottom <laughs> of the feed. I was looking at that the other day. I, I think the first 18 of ours uh, are on the second page, but I think that's a mark of our success. Yes, yes, it is. But it is good to, uh, to come back again towards the top of the feed, so... I'm not, I'm not forgotten. So it's, it's good. It's good to be back on my own platform that I invited myself back on. So thank you to myself uh, and to you. <laughs> well, thank you for being back on the platform to which you invited me to be there with you. Getting a bit uh, meta from the start here. <laughs> the paper that we're speaking about is from the JALT 2020 conference proceedings called Teaching Reading Skills in Surround Sound. What is the study that you are reporting in this paper? I mean, where, where did where did you implement it and, and what did you do? So this isn't really a study, but this is just um, a teaching practice that I developed over the course of the past maybe four or five years. It's mm -hmm. something where, I don't know about you, but I actually like teaching reading, but I think there's a bit of a stigma around reading. And I kind of talk about it in the paper about how some, some people approach education as sort of a passive pipeline um, already. And then when you go into a reading class, again, people might double down on that where this is a passive skill, both teachers and students having that sort of bias. And so number one, I think we should all be aware that that bias could exist with ourselves or our students. We need to be aware of that. And, and number two, just, just go out of your way to make reading classes more engaging. So. I, I think for me, whether you're teaching listening and speaking or, or reading and writing, there, there are definitely challenges. And some of the things I talk about in this paper, of course, can be applied to listening and speaking. But it's just something that I, I, I was working on over the course of a few years. And I, and I wanted to share how I approach reading classes. Um, so if you're, if you're teaching a class where a lot of your students are sort of falling asleep and you're having trouble keeping them engaged or you're having trouble keeping yourself engaged, these are ways that you can sort of flip a switch and get students to think differently about the class almost from the very beginning as they walk through the door. So when you say passive, are you talking about that it's teacher fronted, that the students don't do very much, that it's a quiet classroom? What, what, what's, your, what's your meaning of passive in that sense? I mean, I've, I've done a bit of research on the fact now I don't want to stereotype all the Japanese students, but there, there is sort of a passive approach to education. And I know it's changing. And I know there are steps being done to implement more communicative language teaching strategies. And I know that's, that's in the works. And I, again, I don't want to paint with a broad stroke, but there are a lot of students that are used to a passive teaching style, the sage on the stage sort of thing, the one-way mm. direction, uh, sitting down the whole time and being taught, uh, okay, students sit down and open up your textbooks to page five and the teacher talks the whole time. So there's the, the passive learning style, which some students get accustomed, accustomed to throughout all their classes in junior and senior high school. And then I guess the other thing where I, maybe I conflated the terms where, where reading is a receptive skill. Everyone says reading is a receptive skill. And I think those two, mm. those two terms, passive learning, receptive skills, we shouldn't really think about it like that. And we shouldn't necessarily just say, oh, reading is a receptive skill. I actually uh, disagree with that. So that, that was one of the arguments that I made in the paper. 
that first of all, you're at a bit of a disadvantage if your students come in to the classroom saying, oh, well, I'm used to being a passive learner. So I'll sit and I'll just, I'll listen to what the teacher says. And then, okay, now we're reading a book. So now it's, now it's double, right? Mm. So I'm just going to read this. And so I, I, th I think some students have a bit of a stigma around reading classes. And I think some teachers do as well. So I guess, the, yeah, I guess the main argument is be aware of the, the passive learners in your class. Try to shake them out of that. And I think a lot of teachers do a good, jo good job of that in listening and speaking classes. You know, stand up, walk around, talk to your partner, all that stuff, right? Um, but we can do it in reading as well. We just have to give it a bit of bit of thought, a bit of preparation, and a bit of uh, creativity, and don't necessarily categorize reading. Oh, this is just a receptive skill where students are going to sit down, open the book, and their eyes are going to glaze over. We don't want that. Well, let's let's take a, a bit of a an investigation of receptive and passive skills are not necessarily to be conflated. And mm -hmm. what were your steps taken before you even started this project like what were the things that you started to integrate into your classroom activities that led you to believe that this was a study that was worth pursuing um so again i need to correct you. it's not a study i didn't i didn't collect any data i'm just reporting on a teaching practice now it is okay. something that i could turn into a study um compare and contrast but this is just my own experience of what has worked for me in the classroom so yeah i guess i wanted to start with what doesn't work? Mm -hmm. I've listened to a few presentations where teachers have talked about the problem with reading classes, especially with big reading classes. How do you keep students engaged? You know, how do you, how do you keep them from sleeping? That's a, that's a big thing. I mean, some students open a book and they see a, a large amount of printed text and their eyes glaze over and they want to fall asleep. So I guess the, the impetus of all of this practice, how do we keep our students from not sleeping in class? Okay, that's baseline. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, how do we get them engaged? Um, how do we, how can we confirm comprehension? How can we pace the class where it's interesting for us? How can you adapt for different learning styles? How can you accommodate, accommodate different levels? It's everything. It's, it's, it's everything that I would do if I were going to teach a class to teachers on how to teach reading classes at university. Um, for second language learners, this is what I would do step by step by step. And I think so, it, and I think it works. So on that point, it's essentially trying to break the idea that a receptive class has necessarily to be a passive class and yes. to kind of change the mindset of teachers at, at whatever level. I mean, we will get onto it later because uh, we've spoken recently about people who teach at uh, junior high school and high school level. So this might be something that, that scaled. It was something when I was reading your paper that I, I thought about. Give us some of the things, the practical things that you did in your class to kind of change the mood of the class from it being a purely passive activity. The first thing that I found that really gets everyone excited is the Kahoot. And so I kind of started from there, which is a comprehension um, a comprehension check and I worked backwards from there. So I always would look at the content and build a Kahoot quiz that could check comprehension and not only check comprehension, but also to do a bit of teaching. So the Kahoot is the biggest part of the lesson for me. That is, that is the only part of the lesson where I will actually stand and be the sage on the stage 
So for example, if you make a question and um, after the Kahoot, it shows the percentage of students that got correct and the percentage of students who didn't. And if you see a high percentage of students that got the answer wrong, that's your chance. That's your chance. You have their attention. You know, maybe you have the lights dimmed a bit and you have them in teams and their phones out and you got the Kahoot music going on and you've incentivized the Kahoot. The Kahoot. So the top three teams are going to get extra points for that grade. You do all these things around it, but then that's the, that's the time you can do the, the face-to-face teaching. Um, well, well for, for people who, who don't know Kahoot, and I always uh, appreciate when companies name their brand with an exclamation point, could you explain <laughs> to our listeners what this is? Kahoot is an awesome program. Now, I think they've done some changes recently to, to build up their premium side, where it used to be free as far as the amount of students that could join. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think now they've limited it to 10 people. And after 10 people, you need to buy the Kahoot premium. So if you're um, a university teacher and you have a research budget, I think it's still worth worthwhile doing. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say be turned off by it. I, I think it's a, it's a great tool. Essentially, the teacher has a dashboard and they can build questions. And whether it's a multiple choice question or a short answer, you can also embed videos into the question, which is something I talk about in the paper. And what, what you do is um, you, you put on the screen of the Kahoot, after the quiz is made, there's a link that you put up on the screen and students with their smartphones can access that link. You can give them a QR code and then uh, they type in you know, their ID. And so for me, I always have them do this in pairs. So, and again, we can, we can talk about it later, but uh, reading pairs, it, it, it would be the same, the same pair that I talk about when, when I set to reading pairs. So they, they'd be in pairs and they'd put both their names. And then once everyone's joined, you, know, you can also set times for each question. And, and then the question is played on screen and then on um, their phones, they'll see A, B, C, D, and they have to tap the right button during the right amount of time. After each question, it shows the percentage of students that, are, that got it correct. And at the end of the quiz, um, you can download the stats. So if you actually want to make it a formal assessment, you can download the stats if you want. For me, I just use it to get the top three teams and I give those top three teams extra credit. I think the thing that I like about it the most, it's really easy to mm. make quizzes and it's one of, it's a very easy platform. So drag and drop things. It's very easy. I don't think I've ever had it crash on me. Um, the one thing you want to make sure is you have a strong internet connection. So mm-hmm. sometimes at um, my university, the Wi-Fi can get a bit wonky if too many people are accessing it. So you, you know, use an ethernet cable, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of, it's one of the best tools that I've, I've found to get and and again, I uh, junior high school student, junior high school teachers and and uh, senior high school teachers and elementary school teachers. I think they're all using this around the world. And I did mention that this is this this approach I use for university level second language learners. But I would say that you could you could adapt this approach to any level really, and the kids would be excited about it. Yeah, I, I I agree. I've I've heard uh, of other people using it before. It's certainly a name that's come up when I've gone to conferences and when I've gone to things like uh, reading classes and also things like giving more responsibility to the students to take care of their own learning in classes. It's one of those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you note another one in your paper, something like Quizlet, mm-hmm. which was uh, introduced to me by actually the person who founded it at a conference back, I think, in two thousand and. 
13. Wow. So these are apps that were designed to make you know, classroom interactions easier for teacher to student and student to student as well. So mm -hmm. this is uh, these are apps that are uh, generally available, as you say. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about the concept of surround sound. So when I, I read the title of the paper, I was struck by the fact that, you know, we have reading skills, which are generally uh, receptive, as you say, and sound, which are is often often something that we request our students to produce. And you note in your introduction section that activities that could include creating production from reading would be things like listening to a professional recording of the text or shadowing the recording and reading aloud. I'm interested to know how much you encourage your students to do this in their own self-study kind of telling them that reading doesn't have to be quiet. It doesn't have to be passive. You can actually get up, speak, move around. How, how much do you encourage your students to do this in their own self-study? Actually quite a lot now in the era of COVID. Uh, right. And I, I found I'm getting them to produce a lot more in the era of COVID because I all of my reading classes that I do online Actually, I kind of integrate it now, now, now that we're thinking about it. I, and your original question in surround sound, it's integrating all of it. It's integrating mm -hmm. sound, um, listening to sound, you know, producing sound, all of it. I, I, want, I, want to, I want to attack all of the senses. So actually what I do now with, with, with uh, the Zoom lessons and the homework, so I have a listening, I have some students I meet twice a week, one listening and speaking and one reading and writing. So for their listening and speaking homework, I'll often assign their reading uh, their reading textbook assignment for them to do a read aloud recording. Mm -hmm. And so just get them, just to get them thinking about it. So anything, even like that, if you're teaching an online class, assign your reading text as a read aloud in your listening and speaking class, just to get them out of the mindset that, that reading is, is this quiet sort of, sort of passive, passive thing. Um, so yeah, in, the, in, if, when we go back to, to face to face classes, for example, Again, I'll look at the content of the text, and sometimes there's there's some really interesting content. And I, I gave a couple examples in the paper. So, for example, land diving, mm -hmm. or um, the elephant orchestra. And so, if you don't make the kahoot, and you just have this text, and it's just a block of text, and these students are used to reading a lot in high school, and they just kind of glaze over. And I found before I started doing the kahoot and working my way back from the kahoot and building up to the kahoot. You'd ask a simple comprehension question and they have no idea what the text is about. And sometimes it's really interesting. Mm. And I realized, oh, they actually didn't read it or they don't care or it's not. So then I thought, oh, we have to build up to this. We have to build up to the reading. So for example, if you're teaching something on the, the, the Thai elephant orchestra, have the music playing as they come into the classroom. And right away, they're, they're sort of, hey, what's this? And then you can, you can ask some questions. Has anyone ever heard this music before? Or who do you think the recording, uh, who do you think recorded it? Or when was it recorded? You can sort of ask these questions. You can build a discussion. Um, when you get to the Kahoot, you can embed the YouTube video of the Thai elephant orchestra playing mm -hmm. um, in the text. Maybe that they talk about an elephant who knows how to paint. You put up the YouTube video that the elephant knows how to paint. It comes alive. It's it's not just we're not just learning how to read in a second language. It's much more interesting. I mean, I think you you'd probably agree when you're doing your reading practice in Japanese. I mean, I use the easy uh, the easy news Japanese website, 
it's nice. I might watch the video first. I might, you know, the, the difficult video when they're, when they're showing the, the news clip or I'll look at the picture and, and you, you sort of flip back and forth. So you don't just sort of forget what you're doing. You know, it, maybe there's an article in, in, the, in, in the easy news Japanese about the, the biggest watermelon ever grown in some <laughs> prefecture I'd never heard of, right? Mm-hmm. So without the picture or without the context, you just, you, you, there's a lot of words you don't know and, and, and then you have no idea what you, what, what's going on. And then, but then if you get a little bit of context, it can draw you in, you're more into it. Uh, maybe you're more excited to, to learn some of the words that you don't know, of course, I would assign those words for homework, of course. But um, anyway, I'm kind of going on a tangent. Uh, what was your? Oh, reading aloud. Yes. So part of the part of the class, I do have them read aloud. Uh, so, but before that, I would I would have them listen to the professional recording, and then after that, they would read aloud in pairs um, and alternating paragraphs. And during that time, I will go I'll go around and I'll and I'll listen and I'll make some corrections. Um, in a subtle way, and I'll support them that way. But yes, every single reading class, everyone will be reading the text aloud in its entirety, for sure. Well, that does tie into something that I do in my classes, and in terms of reminding students there's a difference in tone when you're reading from a text and when you're actually producing it naturally. Mm-hmm. So when someone, this is just, this is not me suffering some kind of stroke, but when someone is speaking from a text, they tend to speak on the same tone and then it drops at the end. And then they start <laughs> their next sentence and then they start to go and then it drops at the end. And, and I, I do that as an activity without telling them what I'm doing and asking them to read from text and then saying, okay, everyone stand up, read it at the same time and then sit down when you finish the text and then, and then drawing that on the board, that line where mm. the line is everything the same and then it goes at the end. And like that, this is how you know, I can listen to a tone in class and I can know if people are reading from text or if, I, if they are actually producing something natural because there's chops and there's breaks and there's thinking pauses and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's differences in cadence that come from it. And so it, it does bring with it another level of teaching strategy that you can get from a reading class. Well, I think it's, there's even more, I, I hear many more patterns than that. I mean, you'll hear the intonation up at the end, which maybe means the person doesn't know if they said it right. Mm-hmm. There might be a sort of a cadence going on and then it all of a sudden slows down. And then that can signal to the teacher, oh, the person maybe doesn't know the word, you know, lots of things. I, I think that's the best. All of the, the, the teaching that I'll do, the direct teaching is all sort of subtle. Um, mm-hmm. That's when I can correct a student without embarrassing them. Right. Um, that's when I can hear maybe, oh, there's 10 people that don't know the pronunciation of this word. Then I can maybe choose a point in the class to tell everyone the pronunciation of the word. You're kind of checking, you're checking comprehension a lot of the time. In the end, we are trying to teach them. We're, mm-hmm. we're trying to improve their skills, but we want to do it in sort of a more subtle way where they don't, they don't get switched off by it. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Right. Because receptive skills are, as you you know, as, as you note, something that it, it's kind of difficult to understand as a teacher in a class of maybe 25 to 30 students, it's difficult to know how much they are internalizing or how much they're just, you know, surface level interacting with the text. So actually hearing them interact with it out loud is, as you say, and when there's, when there's a background noise, when there's 26 other people speaking, it's something that you can actually interact with the student and they don't feel embarrassed. It's not teacher fronted necessarily, but it is from the teacher. 
Yeah. And I, and I actually take steps to create more noise. You yep. might find if you have students who are a bit shy and say, okay, everybody read out loud. They're not some students don't jump into it. And so what I do, I do a trick. So after the read aloud, I do the first comprehension check on, on Kahoot. So I'll go around and I'll loudly close the blinds and I'll move furniture around to set up for the Kahoot. I'll try my best to make a lot of noise mm. and that I found that works. And then once the sound starts to fill the room, no one gets embarrassed about reading aloud and, and it's fine. And then some teachers might even play some background music while the, the people are reading aloud. That's cool too. The, the structure of my lesson is always the same. So by the third or fourth lesson, everyone knows what's going on. They're less hesitant to jump in and, and practice practice speaking so that was an interesting point to me i mean i, I this is a, another question that i'd like to ask you slightly later on but feeding into that when in your career as a teacher did you recognize that there are some classes that need a pattern to support the students learning and some that you kind of need to keep fluid so clearly this type of lesson you recognized having a pattern supported students that they first might not get it week one, but by week three, they know what's coming. And so that that uh, anticipation is taken away and they're able to focus their energies on the acti activities of the class. Uh, kind of how long did it take you to figure that out? For reading classes, once I, I essentially I've, I've been tinkering with this for a few years. And I felt once I got it to a point where it was just, everything's going so smoothly. And I thought, let's just do it again. And let's just do it again. And I just, I, I, I don't necessarily do exactly the same thing with my listening and speaking classes. Mm -hmm. I think it just depends on what kind of personality you are and what kind of teacher you are. If this is something that you might want to do once or twice throughout the term, that's cool. And you want to, you want to switch it up. I, I found that over the course of the term, I can, I can reach all my teaching goals and I can do it in a fun, engaging way. And um, so that's, I just, I just started, again, it's, I was sort of tinkering with it, tinkering with it. And then it's kind of like a roller coaster, I guess. You get, you, you, you try to get the best ride mm -hmm. and then hopefully you want the students to, to get in line and get, get on the ride again, right? So that's, that's kind of thing. I, I built the lesson where it can be reproduced every single week and yes, as the as the week as the weeks go on, there's certain aspects where they're not going to be as excited. They get used to the Kahoot, right? And mm -hmm. they get used to reading aloud, so that's good. So on one hand, okay, they get used to the Kahoot. That's maybe not great because in the beginning of term, oh, they're so excited. But also, they get used to reading aloud, where in the beginning of term, they were they had anxiety about it. So th there's give and take, and maybe sometimes if you find that you know, you're doing it three or four weeks in a row. And then you're after the fifth week, the students are just not into it. Yeah. Then switch it up for sure. And just do something else. Um, because that, that can happen. That can happen. Um, depending on the, the personality of the students, I haven't really, I haven't really had a problem with that. I mean, I, I normally can do this lesson whenever I have content to go over. Um, mm -hmm. so normally what, I don't know, six lessons in a row and mm -hmm. then a midterm six lessons in a row. And then the final, or how many weeks are we teaching now? That's, that's wrong. Something like Something like that. So yeah, it's good. It works for me. I would say if you're reading this paper and you want to try it out, give it, give it a try. Um, try it out for maybe three or four weeks and see how it works. And then did, maybe if you want to adapt to it, that's cool. Did you find any uh, noticeable changes? If you were to compare, I know that no two classes the same, but compared to your first classes when you were doing what might have been 
seen as a, a standard reading methodology or something that was recommended by your faculty compared to what you're doing now did you notice any changes in the class dynamic the way that they interacted with you the way they interacted with each other yeah i mean number one the class goes by a lot faster mm. so i think if you're having if you're having problems with engagement and you're having problems with student energy levels the, the, you just seem to be a bit bogged down um everything gets a bit slow Oh, the students are sleeping or, you know, you don't really have a firm grasp of what to teach. So I try to take away anything that's going to bog down. That's so for like vocabulary practice, mm -hmm. I really stress that you need to do the vocabulary um, study for homework. So when you get to class, you essentially know those keywords that you're going to hit. And then when you get to class, I can help you with your pronunciation and I can help you with your fluency and I can help you with your connected speech and these sorts of things. Um, the other thing is I put the onus on the students. It's, this is also your job too. It's not just my job as the teacher, it's your job too. So from the beginning of class, I'm getting, I'm getting them to stand up, move around, find a new partner. That's the very first thing I do. So for example, maybe there's music playing as they walk into the room. So that's setting the context of what they might read later on. They all sit down and then I create reading pairs. And I try to change the reading pairs every single lesson because mm. I don't want the same pairs winning the Kahoot every lesson. That's the problem. You have to, you have yeah. to worry. There's always going to be some student who's is just the best and they might actually carry that team every single lesson. You want to try to avoid that. You don't want, you don't want people to, to switch off from the Kahoot when they know that, Oh, that team's always going to win. So I, 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 the, I'll, I'll make the reading pairs and that's kind of a fun thing. I might have the class stand up in a line and mm -hmm. then um, from tallest to shortest. And I'll just go down the line like you two, you two, you two, you two, or, or have them line up by birthdays yep. or you can just do calling numbers. So there's a bit of an, in it, there's a bit of an anticipation where the students are coming into class and, Oh, who am I going to be paired up with today? Now, where am I going to sit today? Where before, you know, everyone kind of sits down, and then you're trying to sort of get them excited about what they're going to read, but they're not into it really. And then there's some people falling asleep and it just, everything's kind of going slow. <laughs> and then this is just, you can flip everything on a switch and you, you can, you can draw out the content you want to teach in a fun way. Everything's leading towards something. Everything, everything else, every single step in this lesson is leading to the next step. And, and again, at the end, of the class, there is time. I, I'm not. I'm not feeling all of the time in the lesson. And at the very end, um, some some students are going to complete the the last assignment faster than others, right? And that's another time I have to go in and join the groups and discuss and engage with them. And then if someone finishes early, they can start on their homework for the next week, or they can start on their extended reading practice. There's lots of. That's another important thing is is leave some time at the end for everything to, to breathe you know you don't I think some teachers feel like they need to fill every single moment of the class yep and I really don't I really don't think that's true I mean uh, if you talked I think in your interview with Mark Helgeson he was talking about it um, like 20 to 25 minutes right that's that's about it like you don't want to be talking first of all I'm not I'm never going to be talking for more than maybe one minute at a time in front of the whole class mm. but you, you need to switch things up 
And if we're talking about a 90 minute class or a hundred minute class, you really have to, you have to, you have to be careful about pacing. I mean, maybe you should even have a 10 minute break at the 45 minute mark. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, neither do I. And also, um, all these things are bringing back uh, memories. I don't want to take over your interview with with some things, but to bring it back, when I was coordinating classes down at APU, we used to have the concept of the 75% plan. So you would plan for 75% of the class, mm -hmm. because if you planned for 95 or 100% of the class, you would never get through it. It would frustrate you. You'd be rushing past things. You'd be leaving moments that you should be dwelling on, and you'd be putting pressure on the students to get through the content that you had pre-planned. If you plan for 75% of the class, likely that you will actually fill all of it. So letting uh, a class, the activities of the lesson breathe, I think is something that needs to be uh, taught more. Also, the idea of introducing movement into a class that perhaps should traditionally have been viewed as something that didn't have any movement within it, like a listening or a reading class was something when uh, I was teaching a course that had 280 students in it, and we were trying to teach them TOEFL, oh um, listening and reading. The first thing that we introduced was music and movement. Hmm. So every 10 minutes or after each section of the class, we'd play a 30 second stab of music and there would be a prearranged way of moving throughout the class. So, but that would, as you say, that would change every time. So it wasn't, I sit in this place and I end up in this place. The uh, idea of uh, introducing action into what should be a, a passive class is, uh, is something that I think uh, is very important. I'd like to get back to your point about uh, vocabulary and preparing outside of class. And you introduce on page 233 a, a vocabulary journal, mm -hmm. a photograph of a vocabulary journal that a student has produced. What guidance do you give them on what should be included in the journal? Because what I'm reading here are kind of meaningful contextual sentences that give uh, meaning. So even if they forget the meaning of the token that they're supposed to be learning, there's context that can help them. How do you guide them towards creating this vocabulary journal? So as simple as possible, um, the word, the part of speech, the meaning in Japanese, um, and example sentence, that's mm -hmm. it. And uh, I encourage them to sort of maybe cross check. Gshow.org is great. Um, I think you can find a lot of great example sentences there. You have to teach them how to use it. The example section, the example sentences location on gshow.org on your phone is different than the computer. So you have to show them where the example sentences are. Mm -hmm. uh, Deeple is also good. You know, I, I used to use, you know, Google Translate. I don't, I don't really care as long as it's just very simple and highlight the keyword. Um, I'd also, in the example in the paper, I've actually adapted it a bit. I also make them uh, highlight or underline the keyword in the example sentence as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just to, just to stick out, um, just to go over these words one time. And so when they come across it in the next week's lesson, it does not stop them. There's no barrier to fluency. It, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want any sort of blocks. I don't want any sort of, I want, again, I want a sort of a flow going. And the biggest thing that stops a reading lesson is when there's a word that someone doesn't know. Right. And they get all, they get really frustrated by it. I mean, this is, this is myself as well. You're reading something and then you come across a word or phrase you don't know. And, oh, I need to know what that is. And you stop and you look it up and, and then you're just like disjointed. I don't want that. I, I, I really don't want that. So I think if they can take some time and look at the words out of context, 
and look at go through them one time then maybe when they come when they come into class and they start reading and they forget okay we'll have your have your vocabulary journal out on the desk look mm-hmm. at it really quickly it's fine it should it should not it should not slow you down as much and i think uh in the john wiltshire interview um i forget which site citation that is i think he talks about that a lot as well where we need to we need to put more weight on the homework assignments to the students because we want them to do work outside of class so the class can run smoothly for everyone again it's not just our job we have to put some responsibility on them and it really makes everyone's job easier if we think there's something that can be done at home and that's better than be- being done in the classroom i think we should absolutely do that and this is one of them vocabulary instruction should not be explicitly taught in the classroom i don't think at this mm-hmm. level for and i'm and again i'm talking about compulsory english uh second language lessons at the university level mm-hmm. i do not think that they need to be explicitly taught. I think that they, at least the Japanese students that I have, I think they have been taught explicit vocabulary instruction. They've been tasked with memorizing books full, full of words. Um, I, I think they're just going to switch off. I think they're used to that. Now, some, again, again, this is, I don't want to pick with broad strokes. Sometimes it's fun to, to, to teach syllables. Sometimes it's fun to teach pronunciation. But I would say, again, when you're listening to, when people are reading out loud and you hear a pronunciation mistake, and you keep hearing it over and over again. They say, okay, well, all right, cool. This is a chance where I could teach and you teach the word and you teach the pronunciation and you can teach some aspects about phonetics and you can teach some aspects about syllables and stress and these things, but you do it tastefully. You do it, you know, you Mm. don't, you don't slam them. The worst thing you can do is just have a list of 10 words and go over the syllables for each out Mm. of context. I mean, they're just going to, it, there's no point to it. I mean, unless, unless they can sort of apply it. And the reason why you can apply it is you can say, well, all of you are mispronouncing this. You're all of you are adding an extra syllable. So let's talk about syllables quickly. Why, why are you adding an extra syllable or, or all of you are, are putting the stress in the wrong place? Why is that happened? Okay. Let's talk about where the stress goes for different lengths of words and you can do it quickly and then they'll remember it. They'll remember it for the next time. So I, I really, I really, yeah, I, all of the stuff in this paper, I'm really into. Mm. <laughs> I, this is exactly what I would do. And uh, I, I, fi- I find that it, it, it works really well, again, to, to find someone's mistakes and use that as an opportunity to teach them. I think they're more engaged than just teaching something. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like teaching something before you know that there's a problem. Exactly. It, it's, it's more like a, an interventionist kind of uh action research before action research begins it's like this is where the the cycle begins where you notice something in your class you prepare a a short activity doesn't have to be lesson length doesn't have to be course length doesn't have to be built into the syllabus but being able to be on the spot aware i mean present this is something that i I spoke about with mark helgerson and and robert murphy like just being present in the class and, and being ready to to react to these things uh i think makes you um uh, a more engaged teacher and the more that you're engaged in the class I think the students react to that so if you are concerned that your students are sleeping too much in class then the teacher shouldn't sleep either even though their eyes are open and their mouth is moving it's possible that the message they're getting from the teacher is that uh, this lesson doesn't mean that much or that you can sleep walk through it so no I completely agree with you the reference that you're making uh, was to citation 21 uh, John Wiltshire 
from uh, Miyagi Gakuin Women's University, and it was a paper that he produced with Mark Helgeson, uh, appropriately called Tearing Down the Wall of Silence. And so trying to make sure that your students are giving every opportunity to either speak or hear something in the classroom that motivates them to do more. Yeah, those, those two um, gentlemen, Mark Helgeson and John Wiltshire, they're, they're great. And if you ever have a chance to, uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this program are aware of them. If you ever have a chance to listen to one of their presentations, either when they do it together or separately, they're also the authors of the, the book, uh, English Firsthand. And mm -hmm. so I'm, the thing I referenced, I might've heard in a presentation by John um, when he was explaining the fundamentals of how he built his textbook. And again, that was one of the main fundamentals is putting some onus on the homework. And he's pretty strict about it. Like, um, so if a student comes in and didn't do their homework, he says, okay, well, there's a table out there and, and you can do it and then come into the class. Right. And so it's nice. I think it's good. I mean, the, we, we, we have to set some expectations like that and say, hey, we're the teacher. We know what's best in the classroom and we don't need to do this in the class. We do not need to waste time on something you could do on your own that can facilitate an engaging classroom atmosphere. And that's what I like. That's what I like about uh, those two gentlemen. They they're they're about the same thing. And and Helgeson talks about you know his breathing breaks and and uh, all all of all of this stuff. I think it's all you sort of re-engineer or reprogram what went wrong. You know, you mm. look at that class when you look at everything that went wrong. You know, we've all had those classes, especially earlier in our early in our teaching days, especially with reading. And you have a big class and the, the air conditioning is not working right mm -hmm. and it's a bit hot and there's some students that sit in the front of the room and seem really into it but then there's that group of five in the back who are just stagnant and not doing anything and then half the class is sleeping and then you're getting frustrated because you you want them to to pay attention and then and then and then you start to get tired and then now you're kind of not interested into the topic and then maybe they bring you down and so all of this stuff is to avoid the worst things that can happen and go as far away from that as possible. That's, that's the point of all this. Right. And this ties into a conversation that we had recently and that we published with uh, uh, Joe Vitter, uh, a paper that he produced with uh, uh, Ali Alhori on the idea of flipped classroom. And, and as I was reading through your paper, I thought that there are elements of this, that you put the responsibility of the student to come to the lesson prepared for what is expected of them. So even the, the homework activity is not passive. It's very active that they should actually go out and search out the words. And it's not, it's not exactly a flipped classroom, but it does put a lot of the onus on homework. So it was interesting that you bring up um, what uh, John Wiltshire brought up in his interview, which is that if you haven't done your homework, then you can't, you can't join the lesson. It makes homework almost as active, if not more active than what's gonna go in the classroom. It's so interesting. Yeah, and that interview is great about the, the flip learning. It's so interesting. Some of these things see, ca seem counterintuitive. I remember the first time I learned about flip learning and I thought, what? What's that? We can do that? And then you start doing something. It's like, oh my gosh, this works. And mm. you start to think, okay, why does it work? And, you, and then you get kind of excited and then you can build activities to support it. Yeah, you, sometimes you got to flip, flip the thing on its head. And, and, and change the expectations of, of what, what the relationship is between the student and the teacher. And I, and I, and I if I'm going to put myself in the student's point of view, and I'm going to take a Japanese class, and it's a reading class, and I'm going to be sitting in a room with 30 people, 
and we're just going to have a normal lesson, I would be bored to tears. <laughs> I would just, I would be so out of it. Like, and you know, if the teacher's not really doing anything to engage me and, it, and we're just sitting around reading a text in Japanese and maybe there's some words on the board and, and then they say, okay, we'll write these words in your notebook during the lesson. I say, why? You know, it's like, I would just, I, I would keep asking like, why? What's, and then I would, I could understand it. it it's, you have to be careful about these reading classes, I think, to make sure people don't fall into that sort of, okay, I'll just listen to the teacher. And, but then you, you lose the, the why. You, you talk about that a lot. You know, what, what's the reason why? And then how will you get there? I like, you, you talk about that sometimes. Yeah, I borrow that from, uh, from Simon Sinek. Uh, the, the idea of start with why and then how you do it becomes easier and then the what takes care of itself. But I like uh, that. It, it reminds- Let's make a t-shirt. <laughs> I think Simon already did. That actually reminds me of a very personal anecdote. My mum, when I first decided that I was going to stay out in Japan, she decided to take up Japanese lessons in England and mm. she found a Japanese class. And the, the, the teacher was Japanese, had been living in England for quite a while, perhaps wasn't a professional teacher. And so she decided to replicate what she had experienced when she was in junior high school, high school, and insisted that their homework was just kanji. The homework was kanji and then they would come to class and then they would do some limited conversations or vocabulary work and and after a while my mom just kept saying well why why kanji like we're not going to we're never going to learn the first thousand we're never going to be able to read a text like why don't we you know listen to things or or, or practice speaking or something outside of class because my mom is a, a a maths and english teacher mm. um and she spoke to the teacher and the teacher was very indignant about it well how are you supposed to speak Japanese if you don't know kanji <laughs> and so she actually gave up the class it was it was very sad and me and my wife would would we, we supported her in it and we, we tried to put her in send her in other directions but it's a yeah when you don't understand the 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 importance of time on task and if someone only has an hour or two hours to work on their homework especially if it's a voluntary class then giving them something meaningful to do is important I'd like to ask you uh, you employ a fair amount of technology in your classroom. So things like mm -hmm. Kahoot and even, you know, the audio or the visual thing aspects mm -hmm. of your class that you have. Um, what would you see as alternatives in classrooms that don't have video projectors and Wi-Fi access? Let's say, for example, a, a Japanese rural high school or any uh, rural high school. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why teachers choose the top-down teacher-fronted sage on the stage kind of approach uh, and then even when they do have some tech teachers choose not to use it because they don't they haven't had long-term access to it they're unfamiliar with it um, what would be kind of like a low-tech version of what you have been working on I mean the easy answer is the smartphone um, is that a low-tech version of this I I mean I Aren't smartphones ubiquitous? Isn't the internet ubiquitous? At least. Well, in I mean, I, I let's let's take it even broader than Japan. Let's make it okay. even more to the point of a uh, rural Indonesia, Thailand, mm. uh, Uganda. Well, then it would be, it would be tasks. It would be tasks. Mm -hmm. It would be um, in the beginning of class. You get into groups, and you make a poster about the Thai elephant orchestra. You just say that. Mm -hmm. What does an elephant orchestra look like? And maybe give them five minutes to draw a picture. Okay. So that would be at least engaging something outside of the textbook, anything to engage outside of the textbook. I guess it could be uh, teaching them a song. If you know, if you know a song, 
if, right. if they're reading materials about Elton John and you're the teacher and you know Elton John, then you could teach them the lyrics of the song or you could sing the song. Even if you're not a good singer, I think students would respond to that uh, in, in, in any level. Like if I had a Japanese lesson and the lesson started out with the teacher singing me a song, I would be kind of into it, to be honest. It's better than nothing. Exactly. It's better than not doing anything. Um, it could be some sort of rhythm that you teach the, you know, clapping. It could, you, you could do lot, you could do lots of stuff. You could move all the desks, move all the desks to the side of the room and, and do a game, anything, any, any, just anything at all to get them to think about the topic before you open the textbooks. That's what I would suggest. Basically creating energy around something that traditionally hasn't much energy in it, text on the page. Right. Yes. Okay, That's well, my, uh, this, is, this has been a fascinating conversation. And it's also something that we, we personally, even though we've spent uh, quite a while speaking about things uh, in relation to the podcast, we've not really spoken much about pedagogy outside of the two interviews that we've done. Where are you going to go with this? Was this a one-off or is this something that you're going to start adding to uh, maybe outside of reading classes? What things have you learned that you could apply to any of your other classes, writing classes, things like that? That's a great question. Um, I you. think, I think about, <laughs> I actually think about this stuff a lot. Um, so for example, English for academic person, English for academic purposes, Easy is it design. EAP or AEP? I hear different versions of that sometimes. I always thought it was e EAP. Uh, yes. <laughs> Did you answer my question? <laughs> anyway, English for academic purposes, that's how I, I'm used to saying it, where you have to teach these academic writing uh, skills, and it's important. Or if you're teaching a TOA class, uh, that would be, okay, how about that? That that would answer your question. I think integrating the four skills in, in academic um, English classes or acad any sort of second language are really important. I just uh, was talking to someone about this the other day. Well, what's your approach? To, they asked me, what's your approach to teaching academic English? And I asked them about their program. I said, well, do you, you know, what, 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 is, what is your program? Do you, do you try to incorporate the four skills? And they said, yes. I said, okay, yes, I agree with that. I said, no matter what you do, you should try to incorporate the four skills and everything. I think the mm. difficult thing for me is TOEIC because I've taught TOEIC before and that's something where you, Man, if to answer your question, that would be how could I apply this to TOEIC and would it work? I'm not sure um, because in TOEFL, right? There's just so much content and there's like tricks you need to teach people, and that that one's tough. I, I, I if to answer your question, I think I need to think about TOEIC and TOEFL. Is it appropriate to apply this to those techniques? I think English for academic purposes, yes. Yeah, essays and things like that, speeches and you know more academic things. But TOEIC and TOEFL, man, that, that hmm, I have to think about that. Well, the only thing that's worked for me in TOEIC and TOEFL and, and even IELTS and these kind of things is having seminars mm. um, where oh, even like if that. it's a large class, you create kind of activity stations. One quarter of the class is working on listening, one's on reading, one's on speaking, one's on writing. But all of them are trying to incorporate a little version of the four skills. And so there's always, even if you're in a reading group, there's noise in the class. And even if you are in a speaking group, then there are people who are focusing on something. So 
you know, creating 15 minute workstations around the class that people rotate and have activities. I mean, these little tricks that you talk about is mostly to, to do with familiarity and mm. to do with reduction of stress. Mm. So when you're in an environment where I've, everyone is working on something at all times, I think that creates a kind of energy that even if you have to read for five minutes, summarize, read out loud, uh, pick out the, the key points, complete a worksheet, even these kind of things, they create an energy in the class that means that no one feels that they're being left out. They're still part of a group, even though you're doing a reading activity for TOEFL. So, I, I like that. Have you ever thought about writing a paper about that? No. Um, I I have <laughs> several other papers. I, 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 I'm happy to discuss it, and I like to hear people's uh, ideas on it. But I'm because just just to give a shout out to to Jout and the proceedings. Yeah, I, I, I like how they have this outlet because I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to find papers about teaching practice. Right. And so that I think that that's the cool thing about like a proceedings. If you're going to do a present, like I would if I were to attend that presentation, I'm sure I would get something out of it, like your approach to, to teaching TOEIC and those, the, even like you said, seminars, I, I started to think, oh, that would be cool to have stations. And then also maybe each class has a different theme. I started to get kind of excited. If I missed your presentation, I can read about it in the proceedings. So I like how they're, they're offering this opportunity, not just research, but also for teachers to share teaching practices. So shout out to Jalt for that. Thank you. Well, shout out to Jalt and shout out to the fact that we you and I will be at JALT in November this year. Um, yes. Giving our presentation. And also, I think that's a, a good place to go out on because another place that you can hear about teaching practices is here on Lost in Citations, a regular podcast produced by Jonathan and myself. And I'd like to thank you for your time today, Jonathan, and for your insight into your classroom practices. The paper that we've been speaking about is Teaching Reading Skills in Surround Sound that you can find in the JALT Conference Proceedings for 2020. Thank you for your time today, Jonathan, and I look forward to many more years of collaboration with you on this project. And I will probably put the, the link on ResearchGate or Academia or something if people want to read it. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.